Welcome to this production from College Place United Methodist Church. To find out more about our church, please visit our website at www.collegeplaceumc.org. And now, here's our sermon from Rev. Tab Miller. In this Lenten season, we've actually been talking a lot about broken dreams and dreams that seem to be lost and dreams that are out of our grasp, far out, too far to reach, letting go of these dreams. And we want to ask God, God, why can't these dreams be mine? Why can't I have these things? Don't you know how much I could accomplish if you'd allow me to have this dream? You're my father. You want me to be happy. This would be a good thing, God. Just let me have it. It's my dream. And then when we share with others about lost and broken dreams, our friends and our family may say to us, and we may feel as Job felt in that same moment, a little different situation, well, maybe there's something to this here that you're not admitting. Maybe there's some root of evil here. Maybe there's some bitterness here. Maybe there's a bad seed in all of this, this dream that you have. And we insist, no, these are good dreams and God's not letting me have them. Here in America, we have good dreams as a church. The American church has been dreaming for some time now about a resurgence. We want people to flood our doors. We want to have a voice once again in the culture. We want to be able to say things and people actually listen to us and realize we're speaking on behalf of God. We're not trying to force people to bend to our will. We want them to see the freedom in God's will. We're trying. The American church is trying, and yet attendance in American churches have been on a decline. But isn't our dream a good dream? Isn't this what it's supposed to be about? I don't see anything wrong with wanting our churches to grow, do you? But God's not letting us have that sometimes. We're trying, but the dream is a little far out to grasp. There was a time in my life where I actually wanted to shape my ministry, the ministry that God had for me and those who are working along with me. We wanted to go to Africa. We wanted to work with some people we had made connections with there. And so we began to work in that direction and the doors kept shutting. I never even made it to Africa. Little fruit came from my efforts. And I said, I can remember lying awake in the early days of being in ministry a little over a decade ago and saying, God, I thought you wanted me here. Don't you wanted me in ministry? And then, very unexpectedly, and something that I did not plan or something that I did not really want, the door opened for Navajo ministry. Sometimes we have to let go of good things in order to take hold of God things. And we might say, well, if it's a good thing, then how bad can it be if I don't let go of it? God's not giving it to me. What if I just press on ahead? And what if I just take it? And what if I, by my own willpower, just push that door open? It's not a bad dream. What if I just push forward? Will God not use me? Yeah, God is going, even if you leave something behind. So some of us may wonder, did I ever leave that dream that God had me behind and now I've, he's given up on me? No, that's not what I'm saying. But right now God has dreams for you and sometimes our will and his will do not line up. And God wants them to line up because even if we get the ball rolling on our own, and even if some good comes out of what we're doing, it won't get you 
an inch where you want to be. Where is it that we want to be? We want to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We want to be like Him more and more every day. And believe me, as much as I say that doing church and being church and living out of Scripture and being disciples is not about us, believe it or not, God is for you. And if He's denying your dream, He's not saying there's nobody to do ministry in Africa. It's just not for you. And what I have for you will shape you in the direction that I want you to go, and it'll make you who I want you to be. Let go of your dream. As the old saying goes, don't hold on to a mistake just because you spent a lot of time making it. (laughs) The church in Philippi knew exactly where they wanted to go. The church in Philippi wanted to go on to perfection. And Paul is being asked by them, well, you know, Paul, we've, we've done this. We've been here. We, we're trying to live the life in Christ, in relationship with Christ, that you told us to live. And he's saying, they're saying back to Paul, are we there yet? And his answer, Paul's loving answer, is a lot like my, my father's tough loving answer when I was growing up. We ain't ever going to get there unless you clean this mess up that you've made. I'm not, we're, not going, we're not going an inch farther until you clean up this mess. God wants us to look into our hearts and look at the clutter there, the mess that is there. And he's saying, clear a path for the dreams that I have for you. You can't imagine what I have for you. My dreams are so much bigger than your dreams. Let go of your dreams. I know you love them, but let them die so that I can birth something new in you. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 4 through 14. Philippians 3, 4 through 14. If anyone else has reason to be confident, this is Paul speaking. If anybody else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ." The righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the sharing of His suffering by becoming like Him in His death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead, now that I have already obtained this, not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God. Drop the past. Push forward. Don't stop going. These are very inspiring words for us in the midst of this very sobering Lenten season. Some commentaries that I've read on this text over the years don't even hint at any fact of 
discipline or challenge or difficulty in this text. It seems to be just saying, let go and let God. Easy, easy, easy. I was actually reading a commentator uh, some time ago on this passage, and she said, in all seriousness, she said this. She said, any pastor, any pastor who is worth his or her salt will be able to read this passage and understand it with ease and then preach it with ease. Not, yeah. <laughs> Press into God's future. Easy. Just preach it. Don't worry. You don't need any help. Just, just say that. Why not just preach that? Why not just say that? Why not just hold my hand? Don't show it. But what's in my hand? The truth is that once I read this commentary and looked at the text, I, I really actually felt pretty dumb because I've wrestled with this passage. I must not be worth my salt. It's not that easy to understand. I've actually, to be honest with you, I've always struggled with Paul. I love Paul. Paul is a great companion to have, but as far as a theological conversationist, he is so frustrating. He's absolutely maddening. Paul is for me a conundrum. He's a complex writer. Peter even said in 2 Peter, he said, you know Paul, you know that guy? He writes and it's confusing. You know Peter, you know Peter's kind of that straightforward, tough guy. He just tells you like it is, repent and believe. Believe the gospel and that's it, that's his message. And Paul is weaving in and out of his texts. He starts with one thought and he'll get you about halfway to where you want to go and you're like, okay, he's gonna, he's gonna land this plane and all of a sudden, he's off in a different direction. He's, he's talking about something completely different without any explanation of why he did it. He's off on another topic with a new thought, and he won't come back around to his topic until chapters and chapters later. And here, we, we, we kind of assign ourselves a chapter a day. You'll be waiting a long time before Paul answers your questions <laughs> if you read a chapter a day. Just come out with it, Paul. Enough with the back and forth. Enough with your rabbit trails. Enough with your side notes. Enough with your caveats. Enough with your apologies. This is theology. Theology matters. Let's just get down to the point and tell me what you mean. And for years, the church has been saying this to Paul. We're angry at you because we fight over what you say. Couldn't you have just gotten it right the first time? <laughs> Instead of having us preachers clean up his mess. <laughs> However, <laughs> I've come to realize a lot lately something that I've failed to appreciate about Paul. Paul was not just exercising his intellect to exercise his intellect. Paul, and the more I'm in ministry, just over a decade, I've, every day I learn this more and more. Paul is thinking things through. He is straining, he is struggling for the sake of the people of God to explain to them the words God has given to him. For Paul, his scripture writing was a labor of love. It's true, you may be thinking to yourself, well, well, Scripture is the inspired Holy Word of God come to us through His infinite wisdom and through His Holy Spirit. And yet, in His infinite wisdom, God did not, as some may think, possess His writers. Their eyes roll back in their head and they're just a vessel riding away. The Scripture never tells us this. Some other religions believe that of their holy texts. But what God does is He uses the vessel, uses the tool, and yet He allows them to be His person speaking. And so, 
you get a little of the flavor of the writer. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, if you read them, very different texts as far as their grammar is concerned, as far as their vocabulary is concerned, as far as what they want to point out. You get a little bit of where they're coming from, seeing it from their angles. And this is not, as some people may say, a threat to truth. It is a marker and a testimony to the power of God that God can use humans, yes, even me and you, to do all sorts of godly work. The inspired Word of God is a testimony to God working with His people and using us to do holy things. And He's calling you to a life of holiness, whether you believe it or not. Once I began to see the personal side of Paul, I stopped reading his text as dry theological dictionary articles like I used to read in seminary. I understood him a little bit better. The back and forth, the wrestling it out. He is trying to understand his audience, anticipate their objections, anticipate their confusion, anticipate their struggles. And so he's wrestling his heart out onto paper. The word that God has put in his heart, he is translating that word into words for his people. And so Paul becomes very deeply personal with us at times, vulnerable to a point. And yet I find him somewhat amusing. Because when, when people put themselves out there, we find out that people do peculiar things and people are peculiar and funny uh, in each in their own unique way. In our text today, Paul actually gets into a who's who or who's better than who at being a Pharisee. Who's better at being legalistic? I am. That's what he's doing here. My life under, you think you had life under the law. I had life under the law. I was the best at being under the law. In fact, I was perfect, and to prove it, I killed a lot of Christians. <laughs> Pretty tough. Look at my zeal. What a thing to brag about, right? Who would brag about such a thing? How great a Pharisee you are and how many Christians you've killed. But Paul is trying to make a point. He's exposing his past, his dirty, ugly, ugly past, because he knows that this group in Philippi are being swayed by a legalistic group. And he's saying, I can one-up them. I have done it. I have done it to its extreme. And I can tell you it doesn't work. It's not better than relationship with Jesus Christ. So seeing the personal side of Paul, yes, it's, it can be amusing. But what about the complexity? What about the complexity of this text? Why do I think it's complex? I think there's a lot of reasons why I find this text very uh, confusing at times. But I'll just mention one. What could be argued as the key verse in this text in the Greek has a double meaning that you don't see in the English. And depending on which way you interpret it, it changes the meaning. His main argument remains, press on into the future, walk Christ's path because His path is so much better for you. Lay it all behind you that you have, that you're holding on to, grasp on to Christ. And that is easy to preach. It might be a challenge to all of us, but it's easy to say. The problem is not in how, what, what Paul imagines we should do or why we should do it. It's in how he imagines we can accomplish it. How does this happen for me? How do I find myself in the righteousness of Jesus? And here is where the confusing text comes in for us. In the NRSV in which I read this morning, it's fairly easy for us as Methodists to accept what he says. We in the Wesleyan tradition hear this and go, yeah, this makes sense. Listen to his words again. I regard my past as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. Christ. 
Faith in Christ. There it is. So simple. Trust in Jesus and He'll lead you into righteousness. That's the church's goal. We're here to obtain the righteousness of God, not by our own strength, but through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And yet other translations, those of the Reformed tradition, our Calvinist brothers and sisters read this and it says to them, it is through the faith of Christ that we gain righteousness. Therefore, it is not your faith that gives you Christ and His righteousness. It's the faith of Christ Himself and His obedience to the cross. And some would argue that this makes the text really simple because nothing you can do, nothing you can do in this life will provide for you the righteousness of Christ. You can't respond to it. You can't do anything about it. And they go on to argue that what that means is that Christ just sort of arbitrarily chooses, I want to give grace to you and not to you. I want to give grace to you and not to you. Good thing I'm a Christian because I must be in, right? All this time I thought the good news was good news for the world that's lost and dying, but I find that it's here to blow up my egotistical ego, my elitist ego. I'm in and you're out. But I have to admit after saying all that that Paul's words actually can be taken either way. It can mean both. And so I would want to say sloppy theology, Paul, but I have a hunch that he's not being so sloppy. Could it be? Could it be the reason that the text has a double meaning? It's because both are true. Both are true. It's because Christ was faithful and Christ is faithful that you were offered righteousness and therefore you must respond in faith to Him and walk His path and He will lead you into all righteousness. Can it be both? Now, Some may argue that's a weak theological practice. But we Wesleyans are used to being moderate and walking in the middle of the road. And we find that sometimes between the traditions, we find ourselves, there's a ditch on this side and a ditch on this side. And if people are throwing rocks at each other and you're walking down the middle of the road, guess what? You're getting hit, even though they're not aiming at you sometimes. One side promotes grace. The other side promotes works. Methodists say with James, faith produces works. One side promotes justification, the other side sanctification. We Methodists hold dearly to both. Is it the faith in Jesus or is it the faith of Jesus that provides your righteousness? A Methodist would say yes. <laughs> it may be obscure in this text, but just a chapter earlier, listen to what Paul says. Work out of your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. In other words, God's at work, so get to work. God's already there. The, the table's been set. It is there. All you got to do is partake. If we think of our righteousness as our Reformed friends do sometimes as a mere formula, I may be wrong. I may be wrong about all this, but the Bible seems to present unity with Christ as a relationship. And Paul doesn't seem to be saying you have nothing to do with your pursuit of sanctification, your walk with Christ. It's not outward observance, though, of the law that gets you there, but inward devotion to Christ. But here's the key. Both outward observance and inward relationship both require obedience. Otherwise, why does Paul say, to obtain righteousness, I have to put myself behind me. I have to put everything that I hold dear behind me. It sounds like something that Paul is actually decided to do. He doesn't just wait around for God to slap him with righteousness. 
If life with Christ is about relationship, doesn't this make all the sense in the world? The way my commentator was reading, the way the one that I was reading was reading this, it leads us to think that observation of obedience to the words of God is something we should abhor. And therefore, let's just get rid of the season of Lent. But Paul is not saying this. Paul is saying righteousness and religion for religion's sake is worthless. But being known by Christ is everything. And relationship with, with Him is everything. And how strange would it be to say, now that I have a relationship, I don't have to obey Him anymore. What if I said that about any other thing in my life? What if I said, now that I'm married to Natalie, I don't have to be faithful to her anymore? Whoa. Dangerous words, right? That's strange. It's backwards. I have it backwards. I'm not faithful to Natalie because of an arbitrary set of rules that make her love me. And the same thing with God. It's because of our love for one another that I am faithful. It is because Christ loves me that He's faithful to me, and it's because I love Him that I am faithful to Him. It is both faith of and faith in Christ that produces my righteousness. And Paul's challenge to you and to me today is this. Christ has been faithful to you. Are you going to walk His path even if it leads you to the cross? Christ said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And once we understand this faith, not as some formulaic piece of an equation that you can put in into a cosmic formula for salvation, but actual trust in Christ, the message becomes clear. It's not a cold formula, though. It's personal. Christ believes in you. Do you believe in Him? He believes in you because He made it possible for you. Do you want a relationship with Him? Consider the cost. I want to know Christ, Paul says, and the power of His resurrection and the sharing of His suffering by becoming like Him in His death. What does that mean? To obtain, I want to become like Christ by becoming like Him in His death. Just a chapter earlier, Paul tells us what it means to be like Christ in His death. He says, have this mind about you and be this way. Be as Christ, who found Himself in human form. He humbled Himself. He emptied Himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Divest those things. Christ had the seat at the right hand of the Father. He didn't have to come for us. And yet, He put that behind Him to be faithful to you and me. How much more should we be faithful to Him? Become like Christ in His death and become obedient to Him, not for the sake of the law, but because He's already set up your righteousness. He's already made a path. Salvation is here. You just need to come and sit at the table. It's set for you. It's time to eat. Paul used to think that it was his past life, his pedigree, his righteousness, his zeal, that were the things that he held on to that, that made him who he was. And he says, that's all rubbish to me now. And the translation is, is excrement. Now you might say, well, why don't you just have the propriety that the translator used and not say excrement from the pulpit? There's word, use, worse use, words I could use, right? <laughs> You know what excrement is. But here's, the, here's, here's what he's trying to get at. See, I can go in my office and I can be working on a sermon. I can be taking notes. And now I don't like that and water it up and do it again and over and over and over. And I have all these manuscripts that are watered up around me. And I don't have to pay any attention to it. But then Leah comes into my office and I change her diaper. And I put that dirty diaper right there in front of me. I'm cleaning up right then. Right? <laughs> excrement is not something you just leave sitting around. Paul's saying, get it out. You, it's something you take out of the house. It's something you take away. It's something you get far away from you. Leave those things behind. Get it out now. 
So in Lent, what are you beginning to realize are the things in your life you value more, that you focus in on more than your walk with Jesus? What things preoccupy your mind and steal away your walk with Him and your prayer time and being His hands and feet? What things are you pursuing instead of ministry? Jobs, lifestyle, relationships. Maybe it's something it is negative, like worry and anxiety. You've got to answer that question for yourself in Lent. That's what this is all about. Let me put it a little bit differently. What if I asked you to list all the things you think God's calling you to do in ministry right now? You listed it all on a sheet of paper. That paper should be pretty long. And what if I asked you, are you doing all this? Probably most of us in here would say, I'm not doing it all. So why aren't you doing this? And the answer to that question may just be the thing you need to get rid of in your life. What is standing between you and walking with Him in discipleship every step of the way? During our communion time, come and take that thing that is holding you back. There's paper, there's pencils. They'll be provided for you. David will come down and he will help you nail them to the cross. Just write it on there, fold it in half, hand it to him. He'll nail it there for you. Now, some of us may be afraid to do that because, well, if I go to that cross, I'm admitting before everybody in my church I'm a failure that I've put things before God. Listen to what Paul says. Not that I've reached the goal, but I push forward. Push forward. All of us have something to put on this cross unless you're perfect. And then we're really good Methodists then. Right, Dr. D? But we're not that good. We're really good Methodists, but we're not that good. We haven't gotten there yet. Who really wants the prize? That's the question. That's what's holding you back. It's not holding you back that you don't have anything to put on that cross. What's holding you back is, do I really want to die with Christ? Come to the cross. Grow daily. Be more obedient today than you were yesterday. Because Christ has offered you Himself at this table. Will you offer yourself back to Him? Amen. This has been a production of College Place United Methodist Church. May God bless you richly upon hearing this message.